ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients needed for optimal health. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line based on the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research that closes the nutrient gap so you can feel and perform your best. Unlike most supplements, which use cheap synthetic ingredients your body can't absorb, our products are made with clinician-grade, bioavailable ingredients that make a real and noticeable difference. We have a full range of products, from the most advanced multivitamin and phytonutrient formula on the market, to a blend of eight organic superfood mushrooms, including reishi, chaga, and lion's mane, to a highly absorbable liquid D3K2 dropper. Our newest product is BioAvail Omega Plus, a blend of ultra-pure fish oil and the most bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil in a single two soft gel serving. Fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil are renowned for their powerful health benefits. But until now, they've only been available in separate products, which means higher cost and a lot of pills. BioVail Omega Plus gives you a natural and effective way to improve joint and muscle health, boost exercise performance and recovery, elevate mood and mental clarity, and regulate immune function. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T, naturals.com to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everyone, Chris Crosser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jill Carnahan as my guest. She has a new book out called Unexpected, Finding Resilience Through Functional Medicine, Science, and Faith. Jill is a board-certified physician in the functional medicine space she was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer at age 25, and that really changed the trajectory of her life and her career, and then later struggled with severe mold toxicity and illness and Crohn's disease, which has brought her a unique perspective to treating a variety of complex and chronic illnesses, but also on how to respond to illness in your life, how to find meaning and purpose in the midst of your suffering, the power in turning from a purely analytical mind to a more heart-based or intuitive way of living, the importance of forgiveness and grieving uh, in the face of significant health challenges or other challenges, the addictive ways that we use to escape pain and how to overcome them, finding support in your community, strategies for healing trauma. These are a lot of the capacities that we need to develop when we are struggling with any kind of complex chronic illness that's not something that's going to resolve quickly or easily or perhaps ever, or really any significant challenge or long-term difficulty in life. And over the course of my career, I have come to believe that how we relate to ourselves in the process of healing is as important or sometimes more important than what we do to heal. And that's really the, the foundation of this conversation with Dr. Carnahan. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's dive in. Jill, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. 
So I've been aware of you and your work for many years. We haven't had a lot of interaction, um, but after reading your book and learning a little bit more about you, I think we have a pretty similar story in some respects, uh, as is the case for many people in our field, right, who come to it from their own health journey and background. And I know you've written an entire book on this, so I'm not going to ask you to rehash the entire book in this introduction. We're going to talk a lot about the book um, in the course of the interview, but just as a sort of brief overview for people who are not familiar with you, how did you come to this point in time where you wrote this book and you know what inspired you to do that? Yeah, thank you, Chris. You know, it's interesting because I grew up on a farm in central Illinois and had a mother who was a nurse and retired after she had five children. So I had a fairly holistic upbringing and I knew that I, I guess I didn't know I was born a healer, like probably you and many of our colleagues. But in that journey, I knew I wanted to help people. I had no idea I would go into conventional medicine. Um, but as I did that journey and the doors opened up, I realized that maybe the best way to actually make a change in our system was to infiltrate <laughs> and to actually go that route. Even though I grew up not really, I was a very holistic minded, my, my main contacts as a child were chiropractic and acupuncture and those kinds of healers. And I still went to the doctor. It wasn't like we were anti-medical, but I knew that there was more holistic ways to heal. So I went into medicine with a very different mindset. And then, as you know, from the book and anyone who's heard my story at 25, I was diagnosed with aggressive cancer and I had to kind of come to grips with what it was like to actually be the patient and to navigate that from the patient perspective. And the divine knew because what happened with that experience for me is it shaped everything that I do. It was, could have been the worst thing that ever happened. And it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened because it framed my experience as a patient, what I wanted to see in doctors, what I didn't want to see in doctors, and even how to navigate all the information that comes at us. And that's been 20 plus years ago. It's only exponentially more that we're dealing with. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a problem that is somewhat intractable, I think. Uh, unfortunately, I my second book, Unconvention Unconventional Medicine, was about this topic. And I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that I've been disappointed in the lack of progress in many areas, you know, since I published that book in 2017. Of course, there have been bright spots as well in areas of progress and, and improvement. And as long as those incentives continue to exist, it's just human nature that that will be the direction of things. And so we have to figure out a way to change those incentives. That's a totally different <laughs> but related topic. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about, I know you, you were diagnosed with breast cancer at a young age, 25, I believe, and, and that was a big wake-up call for you. Um, so talk a little bit about that and how that changed your trajectory. Yeah, so here I am going along in medical school. I decided to uh, you know, attend conventional medical school, go that way, and was thriving, doing great. And in my third year, just the beginning, it was literally when I was still 24, when I found a lump in my breast during a surgical rotation. 
And I really, at that moment, did not think anything of it. You know, most of us in our 20s, we think we're invincible and mortality isn't really in the conversation. And this was no different for me. Um, I would have probably ignored it. I was in intensive rotations with surgery, like 36 hour shifts and crazy, insane, um, you know, stresses on my physiology because of lack of sleep and all that. But at the insistence of my husband at the time, I went ahead and got it checked out. I'll never forget Chris sitting with a radiologist because as a medical student, what you do is you learn every, everywhere you're at, you're learning. So the radiologist took me back to look at my, you know, mammogram and ultrasound on the big screen. And he's looking at it, pointed out, these are calcifications. And he looked at me and there was just this glint in his eye that I caught because I'm very intuitive. And I thought, Oh, this is not good. And he kind of hit it well. And he said, Jill, you know, if you're 55 years old, this would be highly suspicious for cancer, but you're 25. And, uh, but again, I caught it there. And that was the first moment that the reality of the fact that this could be serious hit me. And I think on an intuitive level, I knew at that moment, I knew I had cancer, but I went on to get a biopsy and actually determine the diagnosis. And then the second call and experience with a doctor colleague teacher in my medical school was the surgeon calling me, Dr. Smith. I'll never forget her. She called me and said, Jill, I don't know how to tell you this but you have aggressive, very aggressive. These cells are some of the worst we've seen, breast cancer. And that's pretty typical in a young person. It's incredibly more aggressive, more life-threatening than someone who is 50, 60, 70 years old. So I knew I was in the battle of my life, but I'll, I'll never forget the, you know, the song on the radio, the color of the walls, that experience. And we all have those where our life shifts and changes in an instant and it's never the same. And that was one for me at the, just a week after my 25th birthday, the call from the surgeon saying, you have aggressive cancer. What are you going to do about it? You know, she didn't say it quite like that, but it was in my heart. And that's where I started to learn. Number one, I went to the library and I started searching on, you know, treatments. I started doing consults, starting getting information. And that's when I first realized I had a almost full medical education. I was nearing the end of my medical education and it was so overwhelming, the complexity. It was not black and white like we expect. And that was my first aha of like, wait, what we think medicine is just like the doctor has the idea of this is the right thing to do. And this is the one way to do it. It is so far from the truth. And as I dove in, even to just this, the types of radiation, the types of chemotherapy, there was no black and white and for sure, no black and white for the youngest person ever diagnosed at Loyola University, Stritch School of Medicine, where I took to, attended medical school. So it was really the bit, first aha was, this is complex and I have a medical education. How much more complex is it for the average patient? Second aha was, there is no standard of care. They, you know, they make it sound like there is, but there isn't. And that was my first incentive to actually, I created my own treatment plan. And I still, because of the, my, my um, aggressiveness of the cancer, my age, I went with a very aggressive regimen. And the third thing that I learned was when I made that decision to go forward with chemotherapy, knowing that there was toxic effects that would probably affect me the rest of my life, if I was cured, I decided to make a decision at that moment in time and never ever in the 20 years later or 30 years later, look back or second guess that decision. And I believe that's one of the things that's created resilience in my mind and body, because I've never said, I still today, Chris, suffer from the effects of that chemotherapeutic regimen 20 plus years ago. But I've never once said, what if I hadn't done it? Or what if I did it? So I've never had to wrestle with that because in the moment, did the best with what I had and I never looked back. I would uh, hardly endorse that as a general strategy in life. And, you know, in respect to our health and any other decision we make, so we're always just doing the best we can with the information we have and with our current capacities and abilities. And 
I know you talk in the last chapter of your book a lot about this unconditional love and self-acceptance, and I'm sure return to this throughout the interview. So you you recovered from cancer, finished medical school, went into the practice of medicine, and you know I, I imagine that initial cancer diagnosis really opened your eyes to some of the limitations of the conventional system. But what continued to draw you toward uh, integrative and and functional medicine? Yeah, so it really was the neat thing was I still had that mentality of holistic. So while I was in chemo and, and radiation, I had prayer, meditation, I had friends and family surrounding me, close network. I had um, a naturopath who did a supplement regimen that worked with the oncologist. Um, I had so I had lots of uh, alternative and integrative therapies during that. And then as soon as I was done with the aggressive treatments, I did everything I could to restore my gut. And one little piece I'll mention here, and we can move on is six months after I got finished with the chemo and radiation, I was in once again in the ER for emergency. I had passed out, found out I had an abscess and was told that I had Crohn's disease. So all of a sudden I was at another level. And again, that related to the chemotherapy, damaging my gut, creating a this predisposition towards attacking self and this autoimmune disease and my gut lining. And then I had Crohn's. So all that experience was really just, um, I think, confirming my desire to combine. And what I always wanted to do was say, how do we take the good science of conventional medicine and the good diagnostic skills and the good clinical skills and just open the minds and hearts of myself and those around me to what else is possible? Like what other therapies can we use and not just be so narrow in our scope? So I came out and then, of course, as many of us could say, we heard, I heard Jeff Bland. <laughs> that was my aha to functional medicine because in my heart, I knew I wanted to do functional medicine. I just didn't know it had a name. And that time, the common term was alternative and integrative. I never liked alternative medicine because I felt like I was putting it, relegating it to the side. So I hated that term. Yeah. I mean, if anything, conventional medicine is an alternative to the traditional systems we've had for a long time. Right. But yeah, I'm totally with you on that. So I, I did not like that term, but the integrator was kind of the route I had chosen. And then when I heard about functional medicine, which to me, the difference integrative, you know, all these wonderful therapists you can use and collaborate with, but functional is what I do as a medical doctor in the clinic as a problem solver and a root cause, you know, finder of root cause. And so when I heard Jeff first talk about that, I was like, that's it. And again, I'm not unique. A lot of people, Jeff has inspired in that. And so literally I was just in my first year of residency in family medicine. And I started doing all the IFM training. Um, and I was among the very first class of graduates from the functional medicine uh, IFM. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, I, I described the difference in a similar way. It's functional is much more systematic in its approach and always looking at the root cause. And if you can still practice integrative medicine in an allopathic framework, right? Where you're just like, mm -hmm. oh, you have high cholesterol, I'm going to give you this this herb or this nutrient to r reduce your levels. Or you have anxiety, I'm going to give you this thing to reduce that. Instead of looking, wait, well, is there a common underlying cause that we can identify and, and address. And to me, that's the key distinction with, with functional and integrative medicine. Yeah. So another thing we share in common is uh, a history of our own experience of mold illness and uh, biotoxin exposure, and also treating a, a number of patients with those conditions. And it's tough, right? Both from on both sides, experiencing that and 
treating patients with it. It's one one of the most tricky constellations um, in my experience to to address because there's so many factors, not just what's happening in, internally with the patient, but playing detect, you know, finding the right environment, indoor environmental professional to do the diagnosis of, of the house or environment and remediation, all that stuff. So let's sort of fast forward in your timeline where you were practicing, doing better, and then mold came into your life. So tell us what happened there and how, how that changed your trajectory again. Yeah. So I always say I, I would have never chosen mold. <laughs> mold chose me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know but, anyone who would. Right. Like it is the, I, I really think it's between mast cell and mold. It is the most complex area of medicine because yeah. it affects all systems and it's very hidden. So often after my mold exposure, which I'll talk about in one second, I would be like, um, I can't, I want to be objective. I want to, you know, see what's going on with this patient. And not everybody has mold, right? Well, over yeah. and over and over again, it would come out that the mold was not 100%, but a very large percentage of people who are suffering with autoimmune or something else that doesn't appear to be mold at first glance is actually mold at the root. So that awareness really, I'm sure like you, it changes everything because then you have this lens and you understand, oh, that's what I'm missing. So my experience was after the Boulder flood, I had moved to Boulder 2010 to start my functional consulting practice, was thriving and doing well and loving life in Colorado. And there was a flood in 2013, a massive epidemic. I remember that. I mean, literally, I think it was almost a billion dollars of damage. So significant. And my office flooded. I had had an older office anyway. So I think there might've been an issue before. Now in hindsight, this is almost laughable. I had a second story office that had been remodeled, the, the, remit, the not remediator, the um, contractor actually threw on a brand new, beautiful bamboo floor over old 20 year old carpet. Like, duh, that's not very good. So I was like soft bamboo, um, probably puffing that gross, moldy, whatever carpet, every step that I took, number one. Number two, that my office was right above a crawl space on the first floor, totally unfinished, standing water, had no idea. And then the bottom floor, the basement was also full of mold. And when that flood occurred, the basement got even more flooded, the crawl space got even worse. And within the next six months, I started having horrendous rashes, acne, um, itching, histamine symptoms, uh, brain fog, uh, congestion, trouble breathing. I had a new diagnosis of asthma at the age of 40. Like that's very unusual. So these are the things that we see in adults, new diagnosis of asthma. There's something going on. If you're 30, 40, somewhere in your later years and not later, but later than, you know, teens, um, and you have a new diagnosis of asthma, that's suspicious for some external environmental thing on the lung lining. So all that to say, um, I was in denial for a while because I did have a suspicion mold was at the cause, but as many of our patients, I'm sure you've encountered this. It's overwhelming. And when you're in mold, there's actually a limbic activation that happens through the chemical inhalation and the hypothalamic pituitary axis that triggers a limbic response. Even if you're healthy, well-adjusted, you have you know great contacts, you've done therapy, you, there is a trauma response just from the chemical inhalation. And I think that adds to the confusion because the overwhelm is present. The brain is literally short-circuiting because of this toxin. So there's a piece I've seen almost 100% of patients and I was no different. I was a little overwhelmed and I didn't know what was wrong and I was in denial. But finally, I found bulk mold of stachybotrys in the basement, same type of toxins from that trichosamines in my urine. I couldn't deny it anymore. And then I had to figure out how to heal. Yeah. So tell me about that process because 
I know from personal experience and from treating hundreds of patients with mold illness that that is art can be arduous and certainly not linear and <laughs> uh, two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes one step forward and five steps back, uh, depending on how things go. So what was that like for you? Yes, it was very difficult. In fact, I went through a divorce a year or so after, and I really think my ex-husband, who we're friends now, but he had Lyme and I had mold and our brains were not working. And we both attribute our illnesses and that trauma of those events to our divorce. And um, it ended up good, but it was it's that big a deal. And I want to say that because a lot of people in the midst of suffering and mold are struggling in their relationships. And it's no wonder because it takes all the resources you can possibly muster to deal with that illness. And you, like for me, I barely, I, I just held together the clinic and slept and ate. And that's all I could do. I didn't have a social life. I didn't do anything outside of that. And to frame it, I really feel it took me about 18 months to get to a point where I was really starting to feel a little bit better. Now, granted, I had the ups and downs, like you mentioned, but I like to frame it like that because so many patients say, how long will this take? And they expect three months or six months. And some people do get better quickly, but it's very common for it to be a year or over a year for you to really, really make that progress. And as you mentioned, um, this was no different with me. I started doing binders and all this detox. And I always say there's two parts of getting rid of toxins. There's mobilization and there's excretion. So mobilization is getting it out of the tissues, like the mycotoxins that have settled in your fat. You need to mobilize them through sauna and all those things that we move the toxins back into the bloodstream so that our liver, our kidney, our skin, our sweat, all those things can filter. But if you mobilize too quickly and you're not excreting that other side of the equation, then you get stuck and you get toxic. And I had hives head to toe for two months because I was pushing, mobilizing way too quickly and not excreting. And now I understand that, but that's part of the reason why people get, and then I had mast cell issues because the, all of that mycotoxins that was being mobilized were triggering my mast cells to produce prostaglandins and histamines. And so I was incredibly sick. I had to literally, when I found out that my office was contaminated with mold, I um, didn't set foot in the office again. I took my charts and left everything. I, I just literally walked away from all my medical school textbooks, my furniture, everything in the office, and I started over. Yeah, and sometimes that's necessary for sure. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. 
Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the emotional, psychological, psycho-spiritual aspects of struggling and working with a chronic illness. You've had multiple experience of this in your life. You've treated a lot of patients with chronic illness. And I, over the course of my career, have become increasingly interested in, in this as a topic because um, from my perspective, there's more to health than just the absence of symptoms. And uh, there are people who are symptom-free who I would describe as incredibly unhealthy in terms of how they relate to themselves and other people and their how they n- operate in the world, their ethics, their attitude, their mood, all of those things. And then there are also people who still experience symptoms but live incredibly rich, meaningful, and rewarding lives. I also have seen in my practice a distinction between people who are able to allow their illness to change them in positive ways and help them grow and evolve as, as, as people and people who are stuck in, and this is said with compassion and, and empathy, but a sort of like, poor me, why is this happening to me? It's not fair. I'm, this shouldn't be happening you know, in a kind of victim mentality. And look, I mean, I was in that mentality myself for a period of time. So again, there's no judgment or criticism there. But I think illness can be a powerful teacher. And you write about this eloquently in your book. Um, So I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about your path in terms of your relationship with with chronic illness and and what that has meant for you and how that has helped you to grow and evolve as a person. Yes. Um, so when you first experience suffering and we all we all are either have just gone through it, we're in it right now, or we're, it's coming up. Like if there's only three possibilities because life is life is life and life has surprises. And my first experience that was a major suffering and trauma was the cancer, of course. And I remember being a little bit shocked um, by the diagnosis, but it wasn't too long after where I heard a message on the radio that said the sickness will, it was a pastor, but the sickness will not end in death, but it was for the glory of God. And whether you believe in God or not, the idea for me was that there was some greater purpose and meaning. And I remember hearing that and immediately like grabbing onto that. And, And in my soul, to me, it was actually a little promise that I would survive. And from that moment on, I never once again doubted that I would survive but it doesn't take away the suffering. It doesn't take away the difficulty. Like when I'm sitting cramped up from the chemo and wanting to die because my stomach hurts so bad and my mouth is ulcerated and I had no hair. I mean, there was some really, really difficult things that I still had to go through. And that was just the first experience because then there's Crohn's and there's mold and there's all these things that come. 
But if we can, when that happens, believe there's not to negate the suffering, like you said, I don't want to minimize and be like a Pollyanna and say, oh, it's all great because it's not, it hurts, it's painful, it can be devastating. But in the midst of the suffering, and I learned this from my heroes, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and Edith Eager and The Gift and some of and these are people who have suffered far more than I can ever imagine in the Holocaust. So I can't even compare to their suffering. But what they've done is teach us how to take find purpose and meaning in the midst of the deepest suffering. Because if we have a number one, a purpose and meaning that's greater than our physical selves, like a, a, a mission, a plan. For me, it was, I want to be a healer. I want to be a great doctor. I want to learn through this. And so I had this motive that was outside of the suffering that I could grab onto and look to pearls in that experience that would help me accomplish that greater purpose. And then the second thing is knowing that deep inside, no matter how much suffering, what man takes away from you, what a relationship does to you, what the financial ruin is, all those things that we can deal with outside of ourselves, no one can take away our choice, our mindset, our self, our faith, our beliefs, all these kinds of things we own. And there's not one type of suffering that can actually steal that for, from us unless we allow it to. And by knowing that, we can really, really own. I recently heard someone who framed it, and I've always thought this way, but I didn't have the frame to say it this clearly. And what she said was, it's all about safety. Where do we find safety? If we find safety in our bank account, and all of a sudden, the you know markets go crazy and we lose all the money in the bank, we're terrified, our limbic system gets activated, and we're in trauma, and we're a why me. If we have faith in our relationship, our marriage, our spouse, our partner, our children, our parents, and all of a sudden we lose them due to an unexplained event or something terrible happens or a divorce happens, that again, the sense of safety is blown apart. If we have sense of safety in our physical bodies, that we you know, are beautiful or healthy or that we, our heart works or that we don't have cancer and our physical health gets disrupted, that sense of safety is blown apart. And every single one of those situations, our limbic system is activated and that activation puts us in a state of trauma where we can't heal. However, if we take something outside of ourselves, our vision for our legacy, what do we want to leave in this world? What is our meaning and purpose of why I'm here? For me, it's existential, my belief in a higher power. And for whatever, you know, you don't have to, whatever piece that is for you, if there's something that's outside of yourself, no one can take away my purpose. No one can take away my vision, my legacy. No one can take away my belief in God and a higher power and the meaning and purpose there. No matter what happens, that sense of safety will never, ever be shaken. And that's the kind of thing that will help us pull out of the difficulties because everything else is fallible. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm a big Viktor Frankl fan as well. And I think he can speak with authority on how to use mindset to overcome adversity, having been through, you know, what he as a concentration, for those who are not familiar with his background, a concentration camp survivor in World War II. Um, and Man's Search for Meaning has, has been, was a kind of Bible to me at one point in my life in the, in the most difficult moments. Let's talk a little bit more about the tools and resources you drew on when you were in the most difficult places. You, you mentioned uh, in your book forgiveness as a key to this process for you. Uh, forgive, I imagine that's forgiveness of self and forgiveness of, of others. Um, it's not something that really gets talked about very much in you know functional medicine generally and and even in um, the recovery from illness but i i think it's an important factor because without that we can really get stuck and in, in these sort of repetitive 
loops of self-judgment or judging other people or again judging what what has happened why did this happen to me and that in my experience can really interfere with getting well in, in the broadest sense so tell me more about your perspective on that I'm going to frame it in acronym because I think that's always memorable for those listening and it's BLT, <laughs> like the sandwich. Um, and that came from, um, I was writing the book and in the midst of COVID 2021, I'm sitting in a chair, home alone, of course, isolated. And I thought, you know what, people are turning from books to screens and everybody I know is watching these serial Netflix and things. And if I really want to influence and inspire, I need to be on screens. But Chris, I don't know what I'm doing, but I had this idea. And then I started talking to friends. And within a week, I had producer, director, an idea for a documentary. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. So um, all that to say, I ended up in the last two years producing a documentary. And um, as we sat down and say, and it was based on kind of the story of the book too, like my journey and my patient's journey in this whole thing of life and how do we overcome? And I promise I'll get back to forgiveness. But as we sat in the car talking about what is this movie going to really mean to people, we said BLT. And BLT means this. Number one, believe. Believe in yourself. And that's part of the forgiveness. But it, you can't really... Um, you can't really love yourself until you believe and trust in yourself. And you can't really trust and believe in yourself until you've forgiven the places you consider flawed or, you know, not enough or all those things that we have, those lies we tell ourselves. So the B is for belief. The L is for um, love. And once again, love others is unconditional love is one of the foundations of healing that I know you and I both believe in, but you can't really truly extend unconditional love without conditions is what it means, of course, to someone else until you do that to yourself. And what I realized is, like I said, and I couldn't really uh, love myself until I trusted my body's signs and symptoms and my own physiology. And how that works is if you have had trauma in your life, which we all have in some form or another, and I certainly am no different, Often what I did before the age of 40 is I learned to dissociate from my body because I felt like it had started to betray me in my twenties with cancer and stuff. So I was all here in my head and I could analyticalize anything that I experienced and just suppress and, and uh, shut down my body's anger, my fear and my sadness and my pain. And I was really, really, really good at dissociating from all of that. And I always say I was like superhuman. I could do anything and it didn't affect me. I didn't cry. I didn't have a lot of sadness. I didn't feel a lot of anger. I first told my therapist the first visit, I don't get angry. Well, she laughed at me. And then of course I had to realize I had just totally suppressed that emotion. But what we do when we do that is we are suppressing our intuitive innate body's ability to tell us signs and signals of what's wrong. And autoimmune in general, I experienced Crohn's and Hashimoto's is metaphorically, as Gabor Mate would say, is attack of self or self-hatred or self-loathing. So before you can extend this healing love to the world and the forgiveness that we're coming back to, you must first address those parts of yourself that you have denied, suppressed, hated, loathed, that you, all those pieces that we've dissociated from, you have to reintegrate in your whole self and start to love those pieces of yourself. And instead of saying, oh, that was stupid, you idiot, why did you do that? You say, oh, sweetheart, you're doing a great job. Let's try that again. Like, that's a way to like, we like show that compassion to ourselves. And you know what? When I started talking to myself, I'm talking like the chatter in our head, like that with the sweetest, kindest words, like I would to a dear friend, that was probably the most transformative thing in my health, in my autoimmune disease, in my mindset of any of the other therapies I'd done prior to that. And that's why I think what you're on to here is so important, Chris, because I took a lot of supplements. I did a lot of IVs. I did a lot of things. And the most 
powerful transformations came from believing in myself, loving myself, every part of myself unconditionally, and then extending that to the world, to everybody that I met. And then the T is trust, trusting your intuition, trusting that your body's signals. When I close my eyes and touch into how am I feeling today? My body tells me everything that I need to know. But for 40 years, I had suppressed those signals. So I didn't have any contact with my body. And it was screaming out with cancer and Crohn's to say, please give me some love and attention. And I promise you, I'll show up for you. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think, I, I mean, it goes in part goes back to safety, what you were talking about before. When we're criticizing and judging ourselves, we don't feel safe and Forgiveness is something that helps create that sense of safety, self-acceptance, self-love. And from that place, we can escape those continuous loops that we often get stuck in um, that interfere with making good choices, that treating ourselves with kindness and doing the things that we actually need to do to get well. Um, I think a lot of people end up getting stuck in cycles of um, self-flagellation, <laughs> alternating back and forth between making progress and then beating themselves up and then making progress and beating themselves up. And forgiveness and self-acceptance can go a long way toward breaking that cycle and just creating a lot more space for a more appropriate response to emerge. Another aspect of that for me, and I'm curious how this has been for you, is, is actually taking the time to grieve. I think in our culture, grief is almost disdained. It, it's it, there's certainly it's certain there's certainly not much space created for it. It's not something that is typically recognized as being important. It's often there's often a lot of judgment around it. It's weak. Um, but if you look at most traditional cultures, they all had grief rituals and. Um, considered it to be very important to set us to, to leave time and space for grieving, not just death of, you know, family member or friend or something like that, or a relationship that didn't go well, but anything that really resulted in sadness or loss, like loss on a, on a big scale, like, you know, being diagnosed with cancer, for example, or, um, having to face a serious mold illness and lose, you know, potentially like being not being able to be in your office or, you know, your livelihood being threatened or your home being, you know, having to leave your home or, or you know, completely gut your home and rebuild it from scratch as so people often have to do. So, I'm curious how um, how you've related to that in on your journey. Oh, you're hitting so many important points, Chris. And grief is definitely one of those big ones for me because I grew up in a culture that was pretty conservative, fundamental. And so women, you know, were optimistic, happy, helpful, considerate, um, not complaining, not too sad, never angry. Like these are just, you know, stereotypes that we kind of ingrained in me. And so after my divorce, which was one of my wake up calls, who am I? What am I doing here? What's my identity after divorce? Um, I started doing neuro-linguistic programming and I did a lot of other therapies besides that, but that was the first one that kind of opened the door for me to uh, go down to the somatic self and feel again. And as I did that, I started really um, understanding that I had suppressed sadness and anger for 40 years. And when I first started allowing that emotion to come back, I remember the first two weeks after that 
first few sessions of neuro-linguistic programming, I had so much sadness. It felt like a wave, like a tsunami that was going to drown me. And I literally, I thought I was going to die because I'd never, I'd always held it back and suppressed it. And finally I was allowing it. Now, what the truth is, is that you're not going to die. And it comes in a wave, just like a wave or tsunami. It's very good metaphor because it comes and washes over you. And then actually, as it washes over, you actually feel better. You feel relieved. You feel like you've allowed yourself to feel. But in the beginning, those first two weeks, I thought this must be what depression is like. Like I'd never experienced that in my life. And it was so hard and so overwhelming. I could barely work those first few weeks. But then gently, as I allowed myself to feel a little by little by little, it became more normal. And I recognized all of a sudden, like my my hands were clenched. And before I told you, I thought I was never angry, but like, oh, I think I'm a little upset. I'm a little angry, but I would let myself feel those things and allow them to flow through. And uh, it wasn't so bad. And it's interesting. I always also equate in this realm addictions, right? Because addictions are just way of suppressing or um, numbing our ability to feel. And I remember sitting in a room with a famous, you know, a health entrepreneur who was talking to a group of us. And he said, he's talking about addiction. And I just totally tuned out because I was like, I'm not, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I don't drink alcohol. And so I thought I was clear, of course not. But um, he started looking and pointing in the room. He said, all of you in this room are addicts and your, ad your addiction is a socially acceptable addiction of work. And I started to kind of pay attention because I was like, what are you talking about? But as he proceeded, I realized he was right because what happened for me is I love my work and I would want nothing else. I'd nothing else I'd rather do. Probably like you, I love to learn. I love to help people, but it's still for me was something, a way of keeping busy on that treadmill and not sitting with my feelings and being quiet. I was so busy that it was just one more way of suppressing that feeling. So I had to really, as we just talked before we got on here, I had to create since that time, a lot more space in my life to actually be with myself to be with my emotions, to allow them in. And this is another thing where it's forgiveness and compassion. You have to have a lot of kindness to yourself in this process because it's messy and it's up and down and up and down. And it's not, I always think, oh, I've done all this work. Well, there's still more to do. It's kind of a process that we continue to grow through. But I think that feeling is so critical to healing. Absolutely. And very much underrated in our culture in general, and, and I think in, in the medical field, of course, there are a lot of people, you know, Gabor Mate talks about this. There are lots of, uh, you know, Bernie Siegel, lots of pioneers who have um, discussed the importance of this over time. I mean, there's even this idea of, uh, which I'm sure you've come across, and I, I'm always, I don't like generalities and, <laughs> and, and labels, but like the type C personality you know, for, for the listeners, you, you've all heard of type A personalities and pe people who are very driven and um, to succeed and, and be accomplished in the world. Um, this idea of the type C personality is generally thought more oriented around people who hold feelings inside. <laughs> Do you think there's anything to that? Was there anything to that for you? Do you think in your experience? Yes, absolutely. Um, Yes, uh, I think that suppression and, you know, this is again, Gabor Mate talks about it. I think also Peter Levine and some of our favorite trauma mm -hmm. experts, who I'm mm -hmm. sure you've read as well as I um, talk about this. And yeah, Gabor my wife is actually an SE practitioner, so I'm quite familiar with Peter's work. Amazing. So you know this very well. 
And uh, he, he shows the data on the incidences of cancer with the type C and it's actually ALS, especially he talked recently in his, his most re recent book, the myth of normal about um, ALS and how ALS is very, very commonly associated with the suppression of emotion. And it's kind of a conscientious personality. It's a very kind of like a people pleasing, you know, not complaining, not asking for needs to be met pretty, you know, kind and compassionate. It's not a bad kind of person to be, but the truth is with ALS, with cancer and certain other diseases like autoimmunity, there's a much higher prevalence of, of this, these diseases with this personality. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to be clear, I think it's overly simplistic to suggest, and I don't think you're doing this, Jill, but I see this happen sometimes that, you know, everyone who has cancer is responsible be, uh, for their own cancer, you know, diagnosis because they didn't adequately express their feelings. Um, that's, I think, a simplistic view of, of it and probably not accurate. I, the way I like to think about it more is like as a process of inquiry. And, you know, if I am diagnosed with cancer, is this a useful perspective? Like, is there anything useful to learn from this idea of a type Z personality? Is that true for me? Is, you know, is it something that I can use as a springboard for learning more about myself and, and growing and evolving as a person? Because I think the danger, of course, is that then it becomes the whole, you know, guilt, blame, shame game, right? Like I did this, it's my fault that I got cancer. Uh, there's something wrong with me, and if I could just be a better person, then I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have gotten cancer. And something that I think easily dispels that idea is the fact that young children, even babies, are sometimes diagnosed with cancer and and die of cancer. And I, I think it would be pretty ridiculous to suggest that. Uh, you know, the toddler who's diagnosed with cancer got it because they didn't adequately vent their, you know, or express their feelings, right? So it's a little, it's tricky, it's nuanced, as most things of any kind of depth are. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure we introduce that because really I, for all auto autoimmune and everything we're talking about here, I couldn't agree more, Chris, I want to be clear too, that it's, but it, the deal is when something happens, if we can just say, okay, what can I learn from this? That's more the perspective you and I are taking is not exactly. that we caused it, but it's like, okay, well, now that we're here, <laughs> what yeah. is there that could possibly help us yeah. to be better? That's right. The other, the other perspective is a rather egocentric view that we're in so much control that, that we, 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 we cause all of these things to happen. The, the perspective you're talking about is we have a choice in how we respond to what happens. We're not necessarily controlling everything, but we, we do have, like you said before, in fact, one of the only things that we have ultimate, that nobody, one of the only sources of control that no one can take away from us is how we respond to what happens to us, which is, you know, can either be terrifying or liberating, depending on how you look at it. I think it's liberating, <laughs> but it does, it does require acknowledging that we are not in as much control over the circumstances of our lives as we often think we are. Yeah. So um, we're getting to the end of our time here, and I just want to conclude the way that you concluded uh, in your book, which was with a, a discussion of the importance of unconditional love as it applies to our healing journey. 
and I think that's a great way <laughs> to end the book and 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 the podcast because for me there's nothing more powerful than that both in terms of how my relationship with myself has evolved over the course of my life and with my family with my patients just with hopefully everybody that I interact with so talk a little bit about your your journey toward unconditional love yeah so this is absolutely the secret sauce and it's funny because I have a you know wonderful clinic I love what I do and I I feel like I, I like the diagnostics and all the depth of the work it's very similar to what you do but at the core I feel like the secret to any success that I could claim is this concept of when the patient walks in the door, do they feel safe and do they feel unconditional love? Because I feel like that walking in, literally, I've said this before, but my staff will get a wine glass and get them a glass of water. But that starts there, that little tiny thing. It's no big deal. It doesn't cost us any more. But what it does is just symbolize the tiniest little thing of you are special, you're important, you're valuable, you're worthy of the most unconditional love possible. And I believe that literally offering them a glass of water and something a little more special than a normal glass is the start of the healing process. And then all the way through my staff and hopefully myself, that love that's extended is really, really core to the healing because like we talked about earlier safety i think a person can only truly relax in themselves or in the presence of another human being when they feel completely at ease and accepted and loved without mask without stipulation without having to perform or having to do anything at all just being that human in front of me and i feel like that is truly the magic or the um, hidden secret to any success that I have is, is I, I really, really, truly love the patients I get to see. And I'm so grateful for those opportunities. Uh, and it's always a work in progress, but it started with the stuff we talked about earlier is really, truly loving myself and then being able to extend that to the patient that walks in the door. Absolutely. So Jill, tell everybody who's listening where they can find out more about your book and pick up a copy. Yes, you can go to readunexpected.com and there's all kinds of free bonuses there you can get as well. And my regular website is just jillcarnahan.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your book. It's a really important contribution to the field. I love seeing this book out there because like, uh, as I've said, I, you know, there are lots of great books on functional medicine and um, the tools and techniques and things we need to be thinking about from that perspective, which your book also includes. But as I have continued to progress in my own career and you know, just, just zoom out and get a broader perspective, I think a lot of what we've talked about in this interview is what people need most. So I'm really glad that you wrote this book. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for the work that you do in the world. And thank you for having me on. I'm so grateful. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. Keep sending your questions to chrisquester.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. 
I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.